G'day coaches. We trust that you've been able to enjoy some Easter downtime, as I know many of you have been navigating the new normal in your private lives, but also your coaching lives, both as a profession, but also as a passion. Recently, there's been an explosion in the ways athletes are keeping themselves ticking over, but also in the coach-athlete engagement and the delivery of ways to engage the squad in terms of keeping them active, but also beginning to map a course on how coaches can have them in a state of readiness as we move from the current distancing policies. And more importantly, maintaining that connection for their mental health. Today, we have Adam Cable on the line, and he is the high performance coach at the Sydney Olympic Park Hub and coach of national team members, Matthew Wilson and Brad Woodward. And discussing not only what he has employed with his swimmers during these times, but also as Adam comes from a really unique position as a physiotherapist, putting a real case forward that there are considerations that we as coaches should look at when planning, prescribing and supervising swimmers in activities remotely. So great to have you with us, Adam. Thanks for, uh, for having me, Ron. Listen, mate, how has your role of, uh, as a coach changed in, in this environment? Yeah, look, it's um, significantly different. Obviously, we don't have the 20 to 30 hours standing, staring at the pool. Um, but I always think about my coach effectiveness being measured by the amount of impact I have on the athletes, whether that be in the immediate session or uh, to their swimming as a whole. And there's still a very big opportunity for us as coaches to have that impact. Um, obviously, it will vary from athlete to athlete, but you know, having a lot of, uh, I think this is about my fourth hour of meetings today, um, a lot of athlete meetings, team meetings with the performance team, um, squad meetings, um, doing a bit of supervision just to make sure they're safely executing some of the programs we've said, and um, we're doing a bit of squad Pilates, so the whole, the whole squad gets on Zoom. I think probably one of the biggest things that's been really quite unique in the situation we are in as coaches is normally when we make decisions um, about how we're going to progress their training moving forward, you know, we make that based on um, what the training outcomes are, so how they're going in the sessions, um, so their results, what we believe is needed to move forward and, um, and also what we see and we're, how they're going um, visually. Uh, and verbally when we speak to them. Obviously, that's been taken away. So probably one of the challenges I'm starting to work through at the moment is is really what can we put in place to try and negate that um, or try and it's a system we can put in place to try and nullify the effect of me not seeing as much swimming and not communicating with them as much as I normally would. Do you, do you think you'll coach differently on the other side of this? Yeah, actually, it's a really good question. I think... Um, to a degree, yes. I think definitely the processes um, taking place um, will be different, probably maybe better, I would say, more streamlined in the way I work with the performance team. I think it's a really good opportunity to build relationships um, with the athletes. And I think like with any major event, um, you know, athletes and coaches change, so therefore the relationship changes. So uh, it will be really fascinating navigating as we move out of this and back on the deck. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Even, even though we don't know how long it'll be, but uh, we can almost guarantee it'll be very different on the other side. Um, so as, as you're moving through, how do you think you can best set your swimmers up for their return to swimming and as, 
as it all starts to ramp up over a period, and, and it will be slow. So how, how, do you, uh, how do you see that from your guys? Yeah, it's a challenging one, and it's, um, it's fairly, for my end, uh, my guys, it's fairly individual how we're managing them through. Uh, remembering there's obviously the emotional toil and cost um, of preparing for an Olympics, being in the middle of it, and then cancelling that. Um, I think the important thing is I need to continue to remind myself is it's not, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, this. Um, and there's still, um, as much as we plan, there's an element of unknown. Um, I think though there's a few good opportunities in this um, in this instance, and um, especially obviously developing some non-specific physiologies. So when I say non-specific, I mean not swimming. So building some low-end aerobic, um, some threshold, their ability to to maintain um, uh, work at a particular heart rate. Um, if I was, as a probably a general rule, I would say that the ones that have less developed systems will probably get more of a benefit from this. Um, so as in younger athletes, will see a more of a translation from, you know, bike and running and rowing into their swimming and or early season, um, you'll get more of a crossover from bike and running and swimming, et cetera, into their swimming. Um, yeah. And I'd like to, like to drill down on that a little bit further because, you know, certainly the, um, the, number of our um, our coaches are dealing with these younger athletes and uh, and I think we can we can sort of really see this as an opportunity as, as you had outlined so how, how would you be uh, be looking forward if you were coaching um, a junior group again uh, junior national group again how would you be saying it yeah I think um, there's probably a couple of points to that I think um, it's a really good opportunity to build some movement literacy. So uh, the athletes that I deal with um, become quite uh, specific to their sport and um, probably less robust when it comes to circuits and running, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think this is a good opportunity. Now, youth athletes don't necessarily have that problem because they, they do PE, they do multiple sports. Uh, hopefully at a young age, they're still doing doing a variety of different uh, movements on the dry land. Um, I think it's a good opportunity to continue to build on that capacity um, as well as the, the site component of, of really increasing ownership, um, independence and accountability to their own swimming. So when you, when you talk about other opportunities and, and you, you've outlined sort of the, the big ticket items, um, getting those, those shifts in physiology and, and, the, and the like, with um, with your high performance athletes, you know it's not only about the bigger stuff; it's also the one percenters. So, what opportunities are you seeing uh, that you can take advantage uh, in here with uh, with those guys? Yeah, I mean it's it's really good. So when um, when we're meeting with the performance team and really planning how we're going to move forward, I think one of the big things that came up is that um, you know when we're in the crunch of it, especially you know mid Olympic prep. One of the most important things is to keep the most important thing the most important thing. Um, so often these smaller projects get pushed to the side and not necessarily addressed. And there's a really, I mean, I, I've found myself is a really good opportunity to address some of those. Um, uh, you know, and, and when we say that is, is to highlight what they are, prioritise them, put some interventions in place and then evaluate whether we made that change. 
for example, some of them have, you know, some muscular asymmetries. So that's asymmetries in bulk, left and right, that we can address, some range asymmetries. Some really are lacking in nutritional education, nutritional skills. So we put some plans in place to address that. Uh, there's, a, there's a multiple, um, some of them have like quite aggravated tendons that don't cope with the load that we're looking to push them through so we can address those in isolation. I just think it's a good opportunity um, to really chase some of the smaller stuff now that we've got the chance. Yeah, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, uh, that tendon loading uh, a, li a little bit later. But uh, moving from the specifics, but you know, more about your coaching. Um, and we, we touched on a little bit earlier about you know, how it is uh, and how maybe it will be. Um, but no matter whether you've, you're working with a high performance uh, group or you're working in an age group program, what's the actual coaching stuff like for you and, and how you see it going forward for now? Yeah, I think for me, probably because there's less interaction it's quite, um, it gives you an opportunity to be a bit more strategic in the interaction that you do have. Um, obviously that balance between having a, a strategic coaching relationship with the athlete and having much more of a, an organic one. Um, for me, uh, I've really put some plans in place about how we can bridge the gap from some of our younger guys and into high performance thinking. So there's some build some independence uh, with some strategies an example of that, for example, as we're getting back into it, some of the athletes in mind will have much more suggestive um, training prescription. Um, so this is what I suggest you do. Um, and then I'll take over the reins uh, gradually as we go. Other athletes will be in the reverse. Um, so I'll be very prescriptive, very deliberate and very... Um, uh, 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 structured. And then as we go, I'll give them the opportunity to have more say. And I, I just think that um, because you're probably communicating one-on-one -on -one more with the athletes than you are in a normal setting where you're coaching them as a group, it's a, it's a really good chance to individualise that. Yeah, I, I, I love that thinking. And I think uh, certainly from uh, there's, there's not a lot of difference between um, how coaches will, uh, will do it, but it, it really needs a planned approach nonetheless. Um, so you were, you're, you're also a physio, so there's, there's certain areas of, of whether coaches are trying to condition them, condition the athletes or entertain the athletes, if you like, in these times, you know, whether it's a backyard pool, but also whether it's, um, uh, in a park running or doing, um, plyometrics and gym and, and, and the like. So you as a physio, um, what sort of advice do you have for, for coaches and what, and what are your views on running spe uh, specifically? Yeah, running is a tough one. I think if I was to put my physio hat on alone, I would say never run a swimmer. Um, but obviously my main role now is a coach and I definitely see the benefits of it. I think we just need to be very careful when prescribing running. Um, one of the big things as coaches, we're not used to prescribing running uh, relative. We're not as skilled at prescribing running progressions as we are in swimming. I think the other thing, the big challenge is, you know, um, a really good running biomechanics requires an element of um, ankle and knee stiffness, um, whereas a really good mechanics of swimming require really great range, great flexibility, great mobility in those joints. Um, 
So depending on sporting background, genetic factors, et cetera, um, we need to be very careful um, when loading them and running. I think if they run, they run regularly already as part of their training, that's not a problem with increasing it by a small percentage. Um, I think if they're youth athletes and are running as part of PE and part of, you know, they might play soccer on the weekends, again, not a problem. I would be hesitant with an unsupervised introduction of running if they don't, they haven't had a significant running history in the last six to 12 months. Um, and I definitely would err on the side of caution um, rather than, so I would much rather err on the side of protection than progression um, with their running. And definitely as they're starting off, giving them about 48 hours in between runs to, to let their joints and tendons, et cetera, recover. Yeah, I've I've seen the um, the, the product of uh, this load um, of running increase uh, uh, firsthand, and uh, it, it they are certainly struggling, and uh, and are looking for ice baths and all sorts of recovery opportunities uh, off the back of it, and uh, and fortunately they have some sort of technique um, so that it's being saved a bit, but I'm sure the majority of our our um, our water-based athletes are not meant to run. Um, but that's some great points there, uh, Adam. So keeping um, your physio hat on, but certainly from a, uh, a, a coach's perspective, and this is where uh, a lot of coaches are, are seeking and, and athletes and families are seeking uh, uh, opportunities to use backyard pools and the like and tethered swimming. So. What are your views about tethered swimming? Yeah, I mean, uh, physio, physiologists love it, biomechs hate it, and I suppose physios have a, a bit of a love-hate relationship. I think the challenge for all of us uh, as physios or coaches is to really balance, the, um, you know, appropriately loading the joints and the tendons and the connective tissue um, to prepare them for return to swimming. But, um, you know, if we, we start to replicate the stroke quite closely that might interrupt their stroke mechanics um, and flow in a normal in their normal setting it's probably not so much of an issue when they're normally training um, because you know they might do uh, you know a drill in the gym that involves their catch or they might do a little bit of tethered swimming and then they go and train for two hours in it um, but you don't have that normalizing training or swimming um, in this setting. So I just think, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, we just need to be quite careful when prescribing it. The, um, oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah, no, keep going. Yeah, sorry, I was on a bit of a, a roll here. Um, yeah, I think uh, if we're probably to go into the, the more detail of tethered swimming, um, it's something that's been a, definitely to Swimming Australia, a discussion point, because um, it is a really good opportunity to, to maintain some feel. Um, and, you know, and athletes, are, you know, they're swimmers, so they're, they're at, they're happiest while they're swimming. Um, I think, um, so both probably my experience, and, and there's a lot of research to suggest this, that your average force applied per stroke is much higher on the tether than there is in swimming. Um, you know, physios like this, so you can do less reps, uh, higher load, load the tendon. I think it makes it challenging for us as coaches to use it as a um, prescription tool particularly because if you think about those really low drag athletes that swim with very low um, resistance, while the, the tethered swimming is going to be a much larger step up on load on their shoulders than, the, than those athletes that sit a little bit lower in the water. 
and uh, and are used to applying big forces to get themselves through. Um, the other thing probably impacting uh, amount of resistance or load on the shoulders would be the, the amount of bounce or, or resistance on the band. Um, you know, a lot of freestyle backstrokers and, and especially high performance level really enjoy swimming on a, on a rope, not as much as they don't have any bounce and they can feel bed spots. Obviously, you can't do that for breaststroke and butterfly. I would say it's almost impossible. But remembering the amount of bounce or give the rope has or the, the bungee has really will have a huge determinant on how much load is applied per stroke. And then that really gives you a, a guide as a coach. Um, well, it really should be a factor that you're taking into account with how much you're prescribing. Um, from a technical point of view, if I just keep on a roll here, um, I find that um, in doing a fair bit of filming in the past, swimmers tend to catch a little deeper. Um, I think this is just so they can get balance and they tend to finish their strokes a little bit earlier. Um, from an injury point of view, obviously, the, the longer the moment arm, the, the greater the load of the shoulder. Um, and uh, those with uh, like quite stiff necks um, when they're breathing in freestyle, they'll have to turn their head more uh, to breathe um, because they don't have the bow to breathe in. So this may impact their stroke, but it also may load their neck a little bit more. So if I was prescribing swimming for those guys, I'd probably really mix up a fair bit of uh, snorkel within it just so I don't overload their neck. You want me to keep on rolling, Ronnie? Yeah, keep going. No, because I'll keep on going. <laughs> because I know that this is something that uh, you um, and uh, Swimming Australia are working on a bit of a plan over the course of the next uh, the number of weeks to be able to um, share this uh, more widely and uh, and with not only the research but also some great underwater filming. So uh, I know this is uh, one of your... Um, uh, keen areas of interest right now so please do yeah I think um, one of the huge benefits of tethered swimming and, and definitely at a high performance level and I would say definitely an age group level swimmers are used to swimming on the tether um, whether it be a bungee a power rack um, you know a really high resistance swimming and most of the time in the past we haven't used it as a conditioning tool we've used it as a teaching tool so they're used to being quite present and concentrating deeply in what they're doing when they're attached so I think we could definitely utilize this when progressing it so starting with quite short intervals uh, with a higher frequency and then increasing the um, from as a teaching tool increasing the, the length of the intervals um, just so they can maintain that probably presence while they're swimming personally myself um, I, I've probably weighed up the pros and cons and, I, and I'll do mostly not necessarily conditioning on the tether from a swimming point of view but just some drills, maintaining feel, uh, maintaining timing, and do most of my conditioning on the tether, if it's an opportunity for some of them, uh, kick. So it would be snorkel board, freestyle, or, or on their back. Um, and, and, and it sounds boring to the athletes, but um, you know, it's no different to running on a treadmill. Uh, it will have probably minimal impact on their technique, and it can get some really good conditioning um, out of it. Um, if I was to prescribe a session, I'd probably do it on stroke counts, um, you know, X amount of strokes, you know, 50 strokes, um, and then 10 seconds rest or something like that, just so then I have to keep looking up at the time. Um, and then you could work it out. So, if the, you know, that average at that intensity, um, you know, it might be a three out of 10, they would do 25 strokes per lap. And that would be 
50 strokes that that intensity would be about a hundred meters and you could probably work it out in your head um, a little bit uh, into as to how far relative to our normal frame of reference they're swimming. I think a good opportunity uh, is, in, is for the athletes to throw a GoPro in the water and send it through to you uh, front on side on just so you can check um, their technique and check that they're not falling into some bad habits or, or the other opportunity is to put a bit of a mirror either on the bottom of the pool like a stainless steel sheet from Bunnings um, or in backstrokers above their head and they can really self-monitor or self-regulate their own technique. And I guess like we're, we're coming into winter now and so if they're still looking at using using backyard pools who that don't have any heating uh, and putting wetsuits on that's going to put them in a different body position again yeah i mean that that's just another another change um you're right i think um on a from a junior athlete point of view uh you know providing a, a variety of different stimulus to these athletes is not necessarily a bad thing really broadening their skill set or we call it aquatic literacy um, or movement competencies. Uh, but what I would do personally is, is not do too much of the same repetitive movement. So um, you might do some vertical kick, followed by some swim, followed by some lateral kick, followed by some backstroke, then freestyle, and then really um, build your conditioning um, across multiple different ways as opposed to to going and swimming for 45 minutes um, with a technique that, that looks nothing like um, how you normally would swim. Because that brings us back to the point you made very early in, in that our younger swimmers do need that broad view and that broad look of uh, any type of conditioning and it doesn't necessarily need to be all of the same. So what would you say specifically for breaststrokers? Yeah, I mean, obviously this is a point of interest for me. Um, if we talk about you know tendon loading or the or, or joint or ligament loading around the the hip and the knee in breaststroke is quite important. Um, see, depending on the type of breaststroke you can do and the, the load that they're used to, this is is quite a, a dangerous time. And I and I probably would recommend every coach gives this a lot of thought um, how they're going to load them. Here, um, I think in my experience, when they're swimming with high resistance or tethered swimming, they tend to um, pull when they're recovering their kick and uh, tend to, to recover a little bit wider because um, it's easy and they're not getting punished um, by increased resistance like they would do um, in normal swimming. And the other thing too, I feel, is that they really struggle to finish their kick, um, remembering that because you'll be, you've just had your largest rate of propulsion, which means you're furthest away from the tether and you've got the highest resistance. So that last bit of your kick is quite challenging. Um, so personally, I think I'm going to mix that up. Um, so do some sculling, some drills, some feel, uh, and then do, do a little bit of the loading um, and just really a variety of vertical kick, uh, wall kick, so that's facing against the wall, deep in the water, vertical kick, um, horizontal kick, um, even a little bit of foot sculling, um, and really just making sure they're getting exposure to the water, exposure to the feeling, but uh, not really interrupting their normal technique. Yeah, yeah, great. And, and I guess we'll, we'll look forward to uh, a bit more on this um, in the near future, the work you're doing with uh, Swimming Australia's uh, Jess Cronies and, uh, and Greg Shaw. Um, you, you mentioned earlier um, 
you had meetings with your squad, both uh, as a team and individually. And, and I guess uh, coaches starting to begin to engage with their squads and their and the swimmers. Um, what's, what sort of planning and, and things that should they take uh, into consideration when they're starting to engage with them? And, and what are the opportunities you see with both an individual approach, but also a team approach? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Obviously, I deal with athletes in a high-performance setting, all of them over 18. So probably I, I don't have the considerations for those that are working in a school environment um, with regards to communication. And uh, I, I know that there's a set of guidelines around that. Um, I probably have the luxury of, of um, not having, um, although obviously within the safe sport framework, not having the restrictions of having to communicate in that regard. I think... Um, from my end, from an individual point of view, there's probably a few things to take into consideration or things that I definitely do. I, I think communicating via video conference or phone, it's, it's not a modality that these athletes are necessarily comfortable with. Um, uh, I, I've, I've talked about in the past a lot that, you know, athletes generally, um, a lot of young guys don't like talking on the phone. They have no experience talking on the phone. They, they would only ever talk to them on the phone to their mum or their grandma. Um, so they may not open up to you about how they're feeling or, or how things are going or, or just struggle to communicate in that medium. And I think it's, it's important for us to recognise that. And, and, and um, it doesn't mean, a bit like um, exposing them to on the tether, et cetera, it doesn't mean that um, it's not important to expose them to this medium. And I think if we can, this whole Zoom concept, um, you know, I, I've been having meetings where I've been, you know, sharing my screen, running through their, their training week um, and chatting through it as we talk. You know, that's a really good, if we get them comfortable in that setting, um, that's a really good tool we can use when they're traveling on international teams. I think um, from an individual point of view, um, they'll be relying heavily on us um, for stability in their swimming when there is not a lot of certainty about timing and, and structure um, and athletes. Uh, some athletes are very good at creating their own structure and I think um, we're in a position to, to facilitate that. Other athletes will need a little bit of help. Now, whether you give them the structure, as in on Monday, I want you to do this, on Monday afternoon, I want you to do this, or, or you, you help them through that process. Um, from a team point of view, um, you know, we've been having a couple of team meetings. There's an element of that that's quite serious, an uh, element of that's a bit of, a bit of fun, a bit of laughing, a bit of banter. We run Pilates together. Um, so it's another way of the group coming together on Zoom. Uh, I know some squads are doing spin classes together on Zoom where they can see their heart rates and they all can see each other and, and talk and et cetera, where they're going. I was speaking, one of the other coaches is, uh, he's having all these Zoom meetings in, in club uniform, which I feel like it's probably not applicable to my setting, but it's a really good way of, of building some connectiveness. And, and, there's, there can be a lot of fun, a lot of, as you said, a lot of banter that goes on in these meetings as well as the, the serious stuff. So are you drilling down into, into the serious stuff? Like are you, you sort of going around the grounds asking, um, you know, ha how they are so they can actually share in that open group? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Probably in my setting, um, I'm trying to keep it relatively low-key at the moment. Um, you know, we're... we're basically talked about building every week closer to becoming a high performance athlete again. Um, being mindful, this is going to be a very, very long Olympic year. Um, they've already cut one, 
short. Um, but to give you a bit of an example, the last meeting we had, which was on Saturday night, um, we did go around the room um, and they all had to say, firstly, what's one thing they did this week that they were really proud of? Um, and then one thing that this week that they could have done better, um, or they were a bit disappointed in themselves. And then uh, the third thing they all had to name was, well, what behaviour are we going to inherit next week um, to put you closer to the mark? And, and then there was definitely some common themes um, among the group. Most of them were really proud of them, um, of them changing or, or having a go at something they've never done, um, whether it be bike riding or, or running or, um, you know, uh, doing a big bushwalk. They were, you know, really, really proud of themselves. And, and probably one thing that, really a common theme among things they were disappointed with um some would die over easter which is probably to be expected um and really a lot of them felt like they were doing things ad hoc um and and wanted more structure um uh, that's a really good coaching opportunity for for that point in time for the group um we talked about creating weekly plans and things like that uh are you, are you sensing um within your team uh different leaders now popping up, some that may not have been so evident in the training pool, but uh, in this medium? Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's always the perception that um, in these settings, your faster swimmers are your, are your leaders. And I think um, in some respects, our sport lends itself to that, but, but often socially, uh, that's not the case. Um, but definitely, I think uh, this situation favours those with a little bit more life experience um, and a little bit more independence. Um, so athletes that have been looking after themselves and um, really managing their own swimming um, and their own lives outside of um, like SOPAC for us, a definitely huge advantage here. Um, and socially, there's always the characters in the group that keep things lighthearted. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, this has been fantastic, and I'm sure coaches or whoever have been listening um, will have really taken something from it. And, uh, and we certainly hope and trust that you and your family are, are staying, uh, staying well and safe and all those that are listening. But it, it, it's probably also appropriate at the moment to remind coaches that all accredited coaches that are engaging their athletes remotely need to ensure they are current members of ASTA uh, registered with a member club uh, and also have the appropriate insurance coverage that is professional indemnity and public liability insurance and also have a current safe sport card. Uh, additionally, if you're experiencing any difficulties, please contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue or any other like organisations uh, for support. Uh, again, thanks for your support. And we look forward to rolling out a number of topical themes, but also some great stories from some of our great high-performance coaches. All the best. Stay well. Stay safe. Thanks, Ron.